From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is the Eurovision News Podcast. In today's digital age, information is traveling faster than ever before. But with speed comes a challenge. How do we know what's true and what's not? With hundreds of hours of video uploaded to social platforms every minute, eyewitness media is playing an ever-increasing role within newsrooms. Eyewitness videos from bystanders and activists are emerging from all over the world in real time as events unfold. How is it possible for newsrooms to discover, verify, and clear this content? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Derek Bowler, the head of social news gathering for the European Broadcasting Union, and Andrew Smith, who will co-host this episode and is a member of Derek's team and a digital verification expert. Hi, Derek. Hi, Andrew. What's up? Let's get into it. So maybe, uh, Derek, you could introduce yourself and tell us um, a bit about the Social Newswire and how it serves as a hub for the EBU membership. Yeah, so uh, I came to the EBU in 2017. Prior to that, I was a journalist at Storyful News Agency in Dublin, um, working specifically on open source investigations, digital verification, I guess. And I came here initially to train staff in social news gathering, but how it actually ended up happening was that while I was here, we kind of looked at ways that we could mine content for public service broadcasters, and um, that was kind of the genesis for the social newsware. Can you describe what a typical day looks like for you and your team? Yeah, it's a hard question because uh, each day is different in terms of the news agenda, of course, but... Um, we work um, from 4 a.m. Geneva time until until 8 p.m. at night. Um, we have people based uh, across the world in places like Dubai, Berlin, Geneva, uh, Rio, uh, and people in Ireland as well. Um, and what we're trying to do is kind of work in, in tandem um, going across the time zones, I guess, in terms of following the news agenda from an eyewitness perspective. So each day we'll come in, look at the news agenda, we'll see how we can tie in with the news exchange in particular, how we can add value to broadcasters, but also try and give them content that they might not necessarily have been able to source themselves or indeed get from other broadcasters or other agencies. So we have our own news agenda. What we'll do then is go and try and source content by building searches, uh, primarily on keywords, etc. And we go across all the full spectrum of platforms. And the idea then is that we um, try and clear the rights, verify the content, and make sure it's legitimate before we push it out to members. It's interesting how you mentioned there that you might cater for different platforms than the traditional uh, news exchange would or that it would have had in its previous kind of uh, serving. Do you find that the the membership, the, the colleagues, the contacts that the members you, you talk to are the different ones than the news desk might talk to? Yeah, that's a good question, because when I first came, it was all about pushing content to the exchange. Um, and we were dealing with a particular type of member, somebody who was really focused on bulletins, etc. But um, over the last number of years, we've seen a quick growth in uh, output by members on social platforms. So they've diversified their content to go to places like YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. And even now we're seeing places like uh, Snapchat, TikTok. Um, and what that really means is that they can't rely on the typical 16 by 9 type content. They have to look at further afield in terms of how they can 
adapt to things like vertical video, how they can um, tell stories, not with broadcast quality content, but actually from eyewitnesses on the ground. And what that has actually done has brought in a new uh, group of people to the exchange, new members, people who are working specifically with platforms, people who are looking for content that's engaging, uh, that's not always the best quality, but also allows people to tell the story in a more um, in a more detailed way. Maybe you could share an example of a challenging story that you have come across recently that was maybe not true or misrepresented. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing that we see uh, when it comes to um, social news gathering is that with the vast influx of content that we ha- that we see on a daily basis, like my team would probably go through without exaggerating thousands of videos every day just to just to go through to get uh, a fraction of that cleared etc but what we're not all of those videos are now current um, often we hear that video is fake it's kind of a all-encompassing term which is, isn't correct um, we we deal a lot in misrepresented content um, and as uh, social media grows in age and content ages what happens when a story happens today is that you might see the re-emergence of content that is five, six, seven years old. Um, one particular story recently was the uh, strikes by the US and UK and Yemen. Um, we saw in the immediate aftermath, we saw videos and images emerging purporting to be from, uh, from Yemen. Very difficult place to source content from, um, not something that we have a member in or that an agency would be getting content from immediately. Um, so our job is to be the first line of defense when it comes to, to content. And often when it comes to stories like that, it's not what you put in, uh, it's what you leave out. And that's where we add value because just because we can't source original content from there doesn't mean we can't add value by protecting members from you know, publishing something that's not legitimate. So in that instance, when the strikes first happened, there was a, a mad rush to get content and get it out there. Um, we looked extensively in the in the opening hours of that story to un- understand what the landscape was, where we could add value. We saw an emergence of videos and images that were questionable quality, very dramatic explosions, content that would make bulletins, social media platforms, etc., but for me, it was really about understanding, was that content legitimate? And we ran a couple of searches with regard to uh, video in particular. And what we discovered was the videos that were being pushed out as being from Yemen. One was from Ukraine in, in 2022. Another one was from Yemen, but it had absolutely nothing to do with the event that had happened. So in that instance, we were alerting members to say, hey, this isn't legitimate. Don't use it. Because often in certain newsrooms, not necessarily in public service broadcasting, but maybe in commercial or other news organizations who don't have maybe the the inside skill sets, they will, an editor will come along maybe and just say, okay, we're going to push that out. That's that's good enough for me. We have a very, very different way of looking at it is that we have to, you know, really kind of protect public service broadcasting as reputable and credible news sources. Um, so in that instance, we protect the members in terms of how we um, alert them to stories and make sure that they don't publish them, causing you know reputable damage. I mean, that's an interesting one. You mentioned that editors might come to you because they've seen a wire, they've seen a, a story break, or they've seen what they believe to be a credible source sharing something. 
does that ever create any sort of conflict or how does that conversation happen with an editor? Yeah, it's a very good question because, you know, there is a friction when it comes to being the person who says no, because there's a, when a story happens, there's a rush to get content out there. Um, and often editors in a newsroom will, you know, make the decision without, you know, considering factors such as verification, copyright, the idea of fair use in content. And it's the rush to get stories out there is where the mistakes are made. You know, we work in a way that's, you know, yes, we want to be first, but we also want to be right. And being right is more important. Um, when we when I speak to editors, it's really um, guiding them through the process of trying to understand why they shouldn't use something or why they should take a beat and say, listen, OK, we're going to we're going to wait for the ESN to give us the go ahead um, or we're going to use their intelligence and make, you know, our own editorial decision. You know, we're not the we're not in newsrooms. There is other factors at play, different laws around copyright, etc. So, we w- what we do is really just present members with what the facts are or what intelligence we can give them, and it's really up to them to make their own decision after that. I wonder if we could circle back to the verification process because it seems quite daunting for someone who's not used to this. I subscribe to your Spotlight newsletter. And I've seen a lot of these videos of explosions happening and they're claiming to be recent events. And when you watch these videos at first glance, like, wow, amazing footage. And I could see the allure of wanting to share this information, these videos, like right away. So maybe we're dipping into the basics of journalism, but what's your process? Do you have a gut feeling right away? Or is there something methodical that you follow along? Tell me a little bit more in depth about the process when you first discover a certain video like that. Yeah, I mean, when a story breaks, the idea is that, you know, the person who published the video is the uploader until we prove they're not. And it's really about a process of elimination. I'm trying to tie the person to that video. And if I can do that um, to the highest degree, and which, of course, the main thing is engaging with them and getting to understand their perspective, because understanding why someone shared a video is crucial when trying to go through a verification process. We have a very stringent way of the way we operate. We have three pillars of verification, which is the source, the date and the location. Building a social footprint of the source, understanding why they were sharing video from a particular place. Do they live there? You know, was it shot at their house? Whatever kind of mechanism that may be that provide to give us an idea that they are the source. We then look at locations. So we're looking at things like landmarks, street signs. It can even go down to, you know, satellite imagery when you're dealing with things maybe a bit more complex. You could be looking at shadows on, uh, that were made by satellite imagery of certain buildings that would give you a location. And then you're looking for the rule of three, which is the date, trying to get three independent sources that verify the, the, the location, um, that the event is happening at that particular time, um, and that there was other people who were there at the time as well who might have filmed the same uh, incident or event from a, from a location, from the same location. But for me, talking to the person is the most important thing because you understand who they are, um, what they're about, um, you get an understanding of uh, the content itself, you're seeing uh, or you're getting a feeling for the emotion behind the content because 
everybody kind of looks at social media and say, oh, he filmed this video. But there might be a nuance to it that you don't get from just looking at the video. That person might give you an extra quote. They might tell you how they were feeling at the time. They might give you some other piece of valuable information that can add to your story. So that's the other kind of three indicators um, that we look at. Building a social footprint of the person is really important because uh, it gives you so many clues about the person. It also allows you to rule out content very quickly. Um, and ruling content out is as important as ruling it in because, as we said previously, the idea of the vast amount of content means that you have to work quickly to be able to, uh, I guess, funnel the, the, the news from the noise of social media. I like what you said there about the... Um well, there were a few things, but namely the conversation. I mean, um, often a case, if you're in doubt, you're, you've done your 85% of verification, it could just well be a conversation with the person. The one question, maybe even a trick question, you know, the person's just posted that they're in Berlin and suddenly they're sharing pictures from Oman two days later. To kind of cross-check that can be done very easily with a question and also you spoke about emotion and obviously we're seeing us currently with uh, stories um, such as warfare that there's emotions attached and um, there's also a real incentive where people feel that they just want to get the story out. But of course you want to attribute it to the correct source. Um, some people might not understand that. Um, they might say, they might very well be at the position that, well, I didn't film it but we want it out so you can share it. H how do you respond to that when somebody says that you should go ahead and share it even though they haven't filmed it? Can you do it? Is that ethical or does that raise... No, I mean, that's... I think when you look at the landscape of uh, digital news gathering, when a story breaks, you often see 50 journalists underneath saying, hey, I work for this company and I'd like to use your video. And you know, they'll say, we'll credit you, you know, so they go through a very kind of low-key type, vague outreach to the person and not really asking the question, you know, you're not giving, essentially, you're not asking for informed consent to use the video. With us, we have a very um, streamlined uh, text, which explains who we are, um, what we're looking to do with the content, but we also ask the question, is this your video? And believe it or not, not everybody in the, on the internet is out to, to lie to you. Often people will say, no, my sister filmed it or, or whatnot. For us as public service media, you know, we have to talk to the copyright holder. The only person who can give me permission to use a video uh, is the copyright holder. And there's hundreds of videos that I've had to just walk away from simply because um, I haven't been able to contact the, the originator. What we do see in the landscape really is that people will just say, hey, can I use your video? And they say, yeah, sure, no worries, without going through the journalistic process, which is the five Ws, the most basic fundamentals of journalism in our space are often ignored in favor of getting the video regardless of what the person says. The problem with that is, is that it leaves you open to not just reputable, uh, repercussions, but also financial. We call digital news gathering the wild west of journalism because you don't have just people looking to take content for free. You have people like us who are trying to do it ethically, and then you have licensing companies. 
and licensing companies are out there to catch people using content without permission. So you have to decide very quickly as an organization what side of the line you're going to do, you're going to be on, because I've seen too many organizations walk the line and for a split second, they take a chance with one video and it can cost them thousands of euros in terms of how the, the financial repercussions afterwards. I've seen recently reputable news organizations cite sources as Facebook or Instagram. Internet is always a good one. Clearly a pitfall, not the correct verification process according to what you're saying. Are there any other pitfalls or examples that you can think of or comment on this topic in particular? Yeah, I mean, there's one in particular that's used quite regularly, and it's the most dangerous word that we see in news these days is the idea of handout. You know, that word is, it's a, it's a walk the line word because th there is ownership beyond with content. Somebody owns something. That person deserves to make the decision about who uses their content. Now, we see that from, you know, there is what we call handout from government organizations, publicly funded sources, um, that will be considered content that you could use, but should still courtesy on screen for, you know, for transparency reasons. Um, the, the line that people cross is when they start using content that might be from uh, a company who's paid a production company to create a video for them or a video news release. Um, and those pitfalls often cause, can cause irreparable damage in terms of credibility. The other thing as well is that when we see, especially when we talk about places like conflict, um, we see people take content that has been framed by a certain organization or by a certain, maybe even a militant group. Um, they don't, it's framed in a certain way that, you know, portrays a certain narrative. Um, and then you might find out maybe a couple of hours later, even maybe a couple of days later, that there's a wider shot or somebody else had a different vantage point and it tells a very, very completely different story to what uh, has been shown. But regards to the crediting, it's super important to, uh, to recognize the people's contributions to the news output. There's, you know, there's a kind of a, a myth in, in news that I like, I want 16 by 9 and I don't want any logos, I don't want any courtesies, I'll pay money for, for somebody not to be uh, courtesy on screen, but you're not giving your audience that information, that vital part that somebody has played a role in your output. Um, and there's been this kind of stigma that, you know, not just from public service media, but from news as a whole, that if audiences keep looking at my videos and it says this organization on screen or this person on screen, that it's actually going to take away. I think that the current landscape that we are in now as a media organization and as, as media as a whole, is that the more transparent we are with the audience, uh, the more likely they are to you know, re rebuild that trust in news. I, I, I like what you said there, because um, every day you, you're, you're confronted with the fact sourcing material for um, a news exchange. Very often, an editor will want um, or will set the bar for quality based on perhaps what they think a polished, finished, uh, traditional TV uh, bulletin would require. But then again, what, what you've just said is very true. The audience nowadays is going to be accessing that content. So what you're at risk of, if you're not willing to sacrifice some of the, the, the image quality, not so much the information quality, but the image quality, is that they might think you're 
hiding something from them. Or as you say, you're not given the 360, you're not given the whole perspective. It's, it, it's a never-ending never debate, isn't it? It's, it's hard to convince, but I think we're, we're getting there. I mean, we're starting to see that um, the news bulletins really need to stretch beyond what they can produce to give a more holistic uh, picture of any one event. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, is that um, news isn't perfect. In, in general, I mean, um, for years, decades, we had beautifully shot photographs. We were sending correspondence to the ground. Uh, we had a cameraman. There was videos being sent back to newsrooms and nice edits were being, being made. That power has been taken away from news organizations because, you know, people with a phone, you know, somebody who has a good voice recorder can become essentially a roving reporter themselves. And often... What you'll see now is in news organizations, they are using at the top of their bulletins, it would be a case of eyewitness video from a particular event because simply the camera wasn't there. But the emergence of technology um, with regard to smartphones and whatnot allows everybody to be there because often, you know, before we would see instances of an event happens and you're just hearing the report of the aftermath or whatever it might be, right now you see the event happening in real time. It can be live on Facebook. It can be basically live on every platform, really. Um, the news organization doesn't necessarily need to be there to film it, but what it needs to do is contextualize it. And that's the most important thing that public service media does, is it contextualizes the story in a way that is informing the public um, and that's a critical part of what we do at the social newswear and at the news exchange. Speaking of technology, there's been a lot of noise in our space about AI and machine learning, etc. Are you seeing an influx of content that's AI generated or is it creating a new workflow for you and your team? Yeah, it's it's a lot of noise, really. I, you know, all of a sudden, you know, six months ago, ChatGPT was the was the new news. Um, and all of a sudden, everyone is an AI expert in terms of what's being, uh, what people are trying to do or tools to help alleviate the problem. A lot of people talking about AI are people who don't work in news. And a lot of people talking about creation and the problem that AI poses to news organizations are people who have an agenda, people who want to either trip up news organizations or people who just want to show what the power of it is. Now, unfortunately, we have seen certain, uh, some public service broadcasters be caught out by AI-generated images. Um, and that's something that's going to increase, I think, as long as news organizations, not just public service media, don't adapt to new mediums. Um, we saw it at the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where TikTok was the, the primary source of information or video, people were immediately struggling just to get up to speed with TikTok. When it comes to it now, some people aren't up to speed with verification practices, and now they're trying to catch up with AI. So they've got double the things that are, uh, are compounding their work. For us, it hasn't changed too much, you know, in terms of uh, what we do we're doing the same thing that we do for all uh, our content that we see online. We have a very simple idea of critical thinking. And that's something that's lacking in 
not just news organizations at times, but in terms of students coming out of universities at the moment, the, the lack of critical thinking or journalistic nous, which doesn't seem to be, it seems to be fading in many places. The idea of asking the question, does this look right? You know, does the Pope wear a puffy, a puffy jacket from Balenciaga? No, of course he doesn't, right? So, but yet it's the it's the news that makes it up. Yes, there's things that are good with AI that are possible. It's not all negative. There's some really positive things that can um, that can change or revolutionize parts of your newsroom. But it never replaces the idea of asking the simple questions about uh, a piece of content. For us, it's business as usual. Um, we prepare every day for an influx of various types of different content. AI is just another thing to add to that. But the importance of AI is that we can't do it ourselves. And that's why the social newswire, we're able to share that intelligence with members. We're able to get feedback from them. They're able to tell us about what's happening in their regions around AI. Um, and we look at ways that we can incorporate AI responsibly, but never to do with output. It's never going to be part of the output for the social newswire. It's always about what you see in the social newswire has been verified by somebody in my team. The script has been written by someone in my team. Um, and we will look at using AI to help with workflows rather than actually anything to do with the output. What I'm hearing from you is that the various tools will always be in the circumference and will have to be an ongoing learning process. But it's really not the most important thing. What you're saying is that the journalistic aspect of the work is really what's paramount, right? Always. It's always been. It's the same the same every day. And it's been the same for decades, you know, hundreds of years with regards to journalism, is that the journalist tells the story um, and we move with the times. We adapt to things like moving to color television, you know, moving to HD, moving away from satellite transmissions, uh, adapting to how we can adapt our content to social media, how we can use social media to leverage our brands. Um, and now AI is going to help us with how we can do things more efficiently. Um, it can also help us with identifying things. But at the same time, the person who is activating or using that tool is the person who's going to make the final decision. We're, we're not at the stage yet for um, a news organization or, or anywhere near the technological advances for a machine to make a decision for you. Um, and that's always why it's important that journalists who are working in news, radio, newspapers, social news gathering are always updating their skills, making sure that they're staying relevant by updating with, or staying up to date with the latest technology, etc., but not letting the technology itself dictate the journalism. It's almost like there's a toolkit and a skill set, right? And you have to actually distinguish between the two often be it other journalists or even your friend outside might ask, what is the tool you would use to verify this? Or what is that magic app that I can just drop a file in and will be able to tell me that that's authentic or fake? And I mean, there isn't really, that that's not possible as such because there might be different platforms, different content types. There's some tools that are more adaptable to certain languages, to certain platforms, to certain regions. And it's kind of like, you know, that thing that nowadays, comparing it to mechanics even, you, you look at your cars and the, the manufacturers have got a lot of the engine kind of hard boxed in, whereas it used to be 
a case that you could replace a part, that you'd be able to tweak it, that you'd learn a bit how the engine worked. Now they've got it as such that maybe for security reasons, for cost efficiency, for all sorts, you have to take the car back to the, to the garage to get it fixed. But you've lost that kind of underlying understanding of how the car engine works. I know that's a bit of a stretch of the imagination, but it's almost that journalists really would be shooting themselves in the foot if they became over-dependent on a tool they thought was, was the perfect tool, right? They'd forget those basic principles, the five Ws, they having the very simple conversation with the uploader. And I suppose they could also be deceived, right? If the, if the AI was uh, hacked or even if it was put out in a way to undermine their credibility or their journalistic integrity. I mean, if you think about it very simply as well, like, you know, 10 years ago, Storyful, we considered ourselves the best tool in the business. You know, you don't need to do the social news gathering because we'll do it for you. And that was the way we operated as an organization at the time. When I came here, the idea of, you know, building something so members could do it themselves was the most important thing for me, was that here I'm, yes, I'm doing the verification, but I'm not going to close it off to you. I'm going to show you how I do it and you can come and learn from us by going to different events, etc. or, you know, coming to some webinars and whatnot. So it's not really about having a toolkit it, it, that's one one button clicks all because I think we get into the dangerous point of you know there's a tool for everything uh, you know people often say to me what tool do you use for for mapping I was like Google Maps and they were like oh wow I didn't realize you could do that and I was like well if you use Google Maps to you know find out where your hotel is and how close it is to the beach for your holidays you've done a geolocation so thinking about tools that are open source, very simply, things that you might not necessarily think have a, a work purpose, often are, so, are the best tools that you use. We have a toolkit that's available to members, um, an awesome toolkit, and there's something like 700 different tools in there. But if you ask me how many times I use those tools, it's maybe once in every 100 videos, because the reality is, is that the verification, the deep level of verification that a lot of news organizations will scare people about is 1% of the time. You know, we, we use a kind of a, a thing, you know, if the Eiffel Tower is in the background, chances are you're in Paris or Las Vegas. And that's the way we look at it. It's, you know, looking very closely at the content and what it offers you often negates the need for a tool because the best tool is the journalist and their critical thinking and how they, their approach to verifying content. Pivoting a bit, the EBU is a hub, it's a network, and the ESN or the social newswire is open to all of our member broadcasters. How do people find you? How do they become part of the network? And once they become part of the network, how do they become part of your community? Yeah, I mean, we have a, our own separate platform uh, for, uh, for the last seven years now. Um, but it's built as a community. It's uh, it's not a website per se that people might be used to using. It's more designed to look like a social media platform where they can see updates, they can private message me, they can message the team and ask for um, 
for requests or help with regard to verification or clearing content. Um, and also have a direct access to the content and view not just this, the video and the script, but they also see the three pillars of verification, which is in each story, where we give them more context and more information about the process that we've just been through to, to put that content out. Um, evnsocialnewswire.ch, it's under EBUSSO. Um, so if you have access to the news exchange or have an SSO account, you can log straight in. Um, and there you will find what we're about. You will find content, you'll find engagement, you'll find my team ready to help members, regardless of whether it's a really complex video uh, from the Middle East or from a, a conflict zone, or whether it's a latest viral video that you want to clear. No question is too big and no question is too small for us. We're always on hand. We publish a lot of content every day, up to you know 50 videos a day, which is quite a lot of content to go through. We service all parts of the newsroom in terms of foreign, domestic, um, lighter type stories. Um, but the idea is to have the members at the center of it. You know, members drive us around the world, essentially. They tell us what they want. We look at things that what members use, what they want more content of, what's trending on the day, uh, what's dramatic, or what is the video or the picture of the day. And we put it there to members, and it's up to them how they want to use it in whatever platform. You spoke about immersive learning, essentially, kind of saying that somebody needs to put their hands to it to actually get confident with the fact that 90% of the verification, as you said, requires some of the very basic uses of open source tools, so to speak. Uh, Laurent, there you kind of mentioned that we were a network and a hub. People come to you for content, but is it also um, a resource that they can come to start to build their own verification hubs within the network, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're lucky we're not a commercial entity because I would be just giving people you know, stuff for free, essentially. But the idea for me is that, because I, I, you know, I speak with members every day of the week in terms of what they're doing, what they're trying to build in their own newsrooms. And often people will say, well, we don't know how to get started with something like Twitter lists, which are super important now because the way X has gone, I should say, in terms of uh, access and verifiable sources. So I'm like, hey, you've got, you know, 600 Twitter lists that you can use for from us. And if you want to copy them, you're more than welcome to do so. Um, you want access to the Social Newswire toolkit? Absolutely. Um, you want to look at our webinars that we've held primarily during the pandemic. It was a way for us to reach members and show them in real-time case studies in terms of how we went about something, but also doing something a bit more active, saying, listen, we're going to have an exercise as a group for a few minutes and you try and do it. And people make mistakes, and it's the best it's the best learning place to make mistakes is to ask questions, understand what you could use or what's available to you. Often the biggest problem that we have, having such a wide range of membership members, is that often people will say, What do you do with the EBU? And they have no idea about the social newswire. They have no idea what's available to them in terms of resources, in terms of content. Um, and recently we've had a lot of members who are just starting for the first time. So people are coming in asking very basic questions like, can I use this on Instagram? It's like, absolutely. All you have to do is respect the restrictions. Um, so it's really a, a, it's really an environment for people to come and, and learn 
ask for intelligence, give intelligence, because I'm not an expert in every country. Um, and I know that if I have people from Vienna, they're much closer to the story and they're going to give me far more uh, accurate intelligence than maybe eyewitnesses on the ground. So it really is a kind of an all-encompassing place where the EBU is going as a whole, is bringing our groups closer together, um, operating on the exchange of not just being a place where people come and exchange content, but also come and exchange intelligence. I guess the chain's only as strong as its weakest link, right? You kind of want the strength of a member in one country that would be able to quickly um, debunk or put into context a certain video in their region will help your next member in another country. And we can really take advantage of that network and to have the communication going on. Yeah, it's, the, it's really the genesis of the EBU. It's like the idea of sharing. And what's happened recently is that over the last, well, seven years since I've been here, there's been an evolution of how we share or what we share. Because what we were sharing previously was primarily audio and video for broadcast. We then became, you know, very self-sufficient with regard to sourcing eyewitness content and sharing that information with members. We then moved on to things like the Data Journalism Network, which again brought a new element to what we're doing. And then you look at more recent developments like European Perspective or the News Deck, where we're not just sharing content, we're sharing text. And that's available for people to put on their, on their websites. So what you're seeing is a steady evolution and a measured approach to what we can share. And a lot of, the, a lot of this is happening because um, I think people at the EBU in particular, um, not just management, even you know, producers and editors realize is that there's more strings to our bow. But we also know as well that we have a lot of skill sets within the EBU, but also within the EBU membership. And what we're seeing now is that those groups are joining forces to create a more robust community, which is far more diverse than ever before. Um, and it's allowing us to tell various different stories across multiple different mediums. So someone who's listening to this, who's interested in starting to do some social news gathering or add it to their repertoire, and maybe have a little apprehension because they're not an expert, they shouldn't feel this way, right? Because what you both are saying is that the more people are part of the network, the more powerful it becomes. The thing about it is, right, is that you have to start somewhere, right? And I often always say, like, you know, if you're going to make mistakes, make the biggest mistakes you possibly can. Just don't do it again. And the thing about it is with, with social news gathering, when I started in this particular area, I was terrible. Like, I was just, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand what I was supposed to be doing. I was trying to learn a complete process. I was like trying to take what I'd learned in university and trying to apply that to this. It was too chaotic. So essentially I came in and said, okay, I'm going to strip away everything that I've learned, keep my journalistic principles. But what I actually, it came full circle in terms of, okay, now I learned a new skill, but what I'm actually trying to do is apply my journalistic skills to a new medium. It's like someone going from TV to radio. There's actually very little difference. You're still asking the same five, uh, five W's. You're still trying to produce a piece of content or try to verify something that is legitimate the same way we, you would do for a newspaper article, 
or for an online piece, I'm just doing the same thing that, you know, somebody at ORF is doing today for broadcasts, interviewing somebody, talking to a source, knowing that this is where the location of the incident happened, this is where we need to be, and it happened on this date. I'm just applying it to a different medium. That's the only difference to what I do. So in terms of what people should be doing, it's like, start. You know, a story happens in your city, in your town. Start reaching out to people. Talk to people who are close to the scene. Try and build, you know, a Twitter list or an X list. You know, people you, you know are maybe journalists in the area or people who might be someone like elected officials, people who are going to give you real-time intelligence because... The biggest thing about social news gathering is that people think it's all about the video or it's all about the image. Often it's not. Often it can be about the context that you get from actually listening to people who are close to the story. Start small. Um, you know, I don't know, should I, I couldn't quote Conor McGregor, I guess, you know, because being Irish, of course. But the thing about it is, is that there's one line that McGregor has uh, that is very, very good in terms of what it, uh, what it, how it relates to journalism and he says precision beats power and timing beats speed you know for us at the social newswire it's all about timing it's always about trying to be first but timing it that we're right first um, and often the power in that reference is the rush to get stuff out there is the force that you have to push against to stop that happening so being precise and having your timings right is the safest way to get started in a social news card. I love the analogy. You're going to be leading a course at the EBU Academy. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is election season this year and the Academy wants to put together a course that incorporated the idea of open source intelligence and investigations mixed with digital news gathering or social news gathering. Um, but with a primary focus on elections and how members can approach uh, elections, whether it's the US presidential election or elections in a different country, what skills they can they can get um, to be able to, you know, look after their own house, shall we say, when it comes to elections. So we're going to do two days. It's going to be four sessions. Uh, we'll touch on... Uh, verification as a, you know, a standard, I guess, really in terms of um, what we're doing. But then what we look at is um, things like bots and cyborgs, for instance, which played a large role in the 2016 uh, election. Um, we'll talk about how uh, those bots and cyborgs are kind of used to, I, I guess, build an ecosystem or change ideologies of people who may be voting one way or another. But then one of the most important sessions then we'll talk about as well is how you, how you present that information to the audience. Because often we'll see is that people struggle to communicate their findings to the audience and, you know, how that should be presented. So at the end of the course, we will look at a session about how can I make this work as an output? How can I use the verification information to be able to, uh, you know, discredit disinformation or misinformation. So the idea is that a person will leave with, um, essentially each session will give them a one page or of operational things that they can implement very, very quickly into their newsroom, but also ideas in terms of their own landscape, because not every everything we say at these courses is going to fit every uh, 
geopolitical situation. But certainly there is um, wireframes almost of ideas that people can amend or can use to be able to make sure that when it, they are fact-checking uh, an election or they are trying to look at misinformation or disinformation, that they can do it relatively quickly using steps that are tried and trusted in the in the verification process. Would you mind repeating how people can get involved with the Social Newswire and where they can find out more information? Yeah, so I mean, uh, the easiest way to get in contact with us is evnsocialnewswire.ch under EBUSSO. The idea is that you can come, log in, and we have a number of different channels that we use. One is the newsroom channel where um, someone can come and make a request, like they're posting to Facebook or something like that, and they'll get a reply, uh, which is open to everyone to see, so it's you know transparent for all the members. Um, you can follow us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're on WhatsApp. Um, so you don't have to be just logged into the website, whatever your uh, favorite platform actually is, we're there and you'll be able to see the latest updates from us. Great. Derek, Andrew, thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Lonesser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.